Our welcome, everyone. This is Scott Cantrell for Smart Solutions Media, and I am especially excited to be joined by not only a friend, um, which I, I don't use that word lightly at all, but this gentleman is not only a friend, I also consider him a colleague and, and a mentor. And so I'm really excited to introduce you to Trey Taylor. Trey has has had a, a very varied career, and we may get into some of that, but he has tremendous scopes of expertise and his spectrum of knowledge related to what we do as consultants is not insignificant. He, of course, himself is a consultant, and so he's not only uh, talking the talk, he's also walking the walk. He developed a program called the CEO Academy, which I had the privilege of attending and going through. Being in the business that we're in, doing what we do, I think we have to be and we're required to be lifelong students if we want to continue to bring value to our clients. I can tell you in everything that I've gone through, all the trainings, all the workshops, all the Zoom webcast courses and everything, the CEO Academy has two superlatives next to it. And I don't think those are ever going to go away. The number one superlative, and and, uh, Trey will probably nod his head here, was just how intense the sessions and the program was. And I mean that in the best sense of of the word. This was not something that Trey created by happenstance or just because he needed a program. This The work came out of his heart and his mind and he laid it all out. And then he held the group that I was with, and I'm sure he does this with all of his groups. He held us incredibly accountable to not just the material, not just the intellectual understanding of the material, but the uh, the heart aspect of the material. It was an incredibly intense program. So that's one superlative. The second one is it, it's probably the most rewarding experience that I've had going through a program like that. And I think those two superlatives are directly connected to one another. It wasn't something that we just learned. It was something that we felt. And so I suspect, I say all that to say this, I suspect that over the next 20 or 30 minutes in my interview with Trey, you'll have that kind of experience. You'll see his passion. Of course, you'll understand his expertise, but I hope you all will take that away and understand that this gentleman is not just uh, coming from the intellectual side, but he's also coming from a very heartfelt, genuine side of things as well. He runs an organization called Trinity Blue Consulting and is the recent author of a book I can't wait to devour called A CEO Only Does Three Things, Culture, People, and Numbers. And so uh, I'm really excited to welcome uh, Trey to this interview. One last note before I'll, uh, I'll kick it over to Trey. You all should know that when Trey started his most recent consulting practice, he grew that practice from $0 to nearly $500,000 of recurring annual revenue in just about nine months. So this guy knows a few things uh, that we could all do well to learn and adapt and adopt in our own practices. Trey, thank you so much for coming on and uh, being a part of this interview and, and uh, you know, honestly, uh, sharing your time and your expertise with me and the folks who who are watching the video. Well, Scott, thanks for such a enthusiastic uh, welcome. I mean, uh, if I'm listening to that, I think I want to listen to myself. I'm so <laughs> enthused by what you said there. So thanks so much for that. And uh, and I'm glad to hear you you say. I mean, I kind of know, but I'm glad to hear you say how much uh, CEO Academy meant to you. It meant a whole bunch to me to finally sort of wrangle a lot of different philosophies together. Uh, and really give it uh, sort of a dry run almost because you guys were in my first uh, CEO Academy. And uh, we've done it several times since then, many times since then. We're actually working on an online version. Right now, I was in the studio last week 
uh, tweaking some of the uh, videos, and we think that's sort of a Q1 launch for us. Uh, but uh, really glad to know that it was so impactful uh, on you, of course, as you are now the CEO of your of your newest uh, venture. And uh, you know, I keep tabs on all of the graduates, and they are all doing very well. So it's uh, it's a good a good course, and I love the impact that it had on people. So uh, thanks very much for the hat tip on that. Of course, of course. Well, it's well deserved, and um, I'm really excited about the online version. Uh, although, of course, as you well know, and as we've talked about in the past, doing something like that live has a different kind of experience. I suspect you, <clears throat> excuse me, I suspect you will find ways to get as close to that live and interactive experience online as as is possible. Um, well, I look forward to your feedback and see if we uh, nail that or not. But uh, we really are thinking sort of that we need a hybrid approach to it. So, you know, I hate to call it sort of canned content, but the things that we do every single time, no matter the group, we can replicate that and deliver that efficiently. Um, but but I think we also need to have a, a live portion uh, of the course so that we can hear from each other on how we are applying the principles of the course in our businesses and in ourselves to grow our businesses and to grow as, as people, which you know is very core to that, uh, to that course and my philosophy. Yeah, yeah, no question. And I think that makes perfect sense. And, and actually, you know, that statement is, is sort of alluding to the place I wanted to go first. And for those of you who may be watching, you know, this video many days, weeks, or even months from when it was recorded, we are just at the beginning of Q4 in 2020, and we're still in the midst of, of a chaotic world in general, primarily catalyzed and led by the global challenge uh, facing us, this, this COVID-19 pandemic, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum is, is, is largely irrelevant in terms of, of accepting and acknowledging the level of impact that the pandemic has had. And, and Trey, I wanted to ask you, um, working with so many businesses, having been a part of different organizations in the past, uh, but also being on the front lines now, what is your perspective in the current world related to business strategy, growth, for, for a consultant, advisor, and similar professional? You know, I, I try to, for the last few videos or, or interviews that we've recorded here, I try to ask that question. Um, and I think everyone in some ways has a common answer, but everybody has their own perspective and take. And I think that's incredibly valuable for everyone to hear these different uh, approaches and how they're, how, they're, how they're putting the pandemic in its place, so to speak, right? Uh, what's your yeah. perspective on the situation? Well, um, you know, I, I described uh, COVID as a slow motion 9-11. We absolutely knew what we were watching. The conversation of the time was, well, we'll have to wait and see and that sort of thing. But those with eyes to see knew that the world was changing right in front of our faces. What we did not know was what was going to come back, how it was going to be uh, accessible and available and in what ways and that sort of thing. But we knew if you knew how to look at it, you knew that something was changing. So in our own practice, we made some pretty radical shifts that I'm happy to talk about if we want to get uh, down to that level. But, you know, overall in the coaching of consultants that I do today, and I was in um, uh, Tampa, Florida last week for a mastermind uh, group of coaches and consultants uh, in the real estate business, educators in the real estate business, the really successful top 20% of that group uh, was, was preaching the same message, which was the world has changed forever and everything you do has to follow that. And so the idea that we sit on the couch and wait for things to get back to normal 
There's no such thing. And it's not even the term was thrown around, not the new normal. It's the now normal, Mm -hmm. right? We don't have to wait to deliver the value that we can deliver. We have to figure out how to deliver that value. And the first question on that is how can our clients best receive it? So that's the real central message to what I'm coaching consultants to do right now is figure out how can you get your message to people who need it? They very much need it in times like this. And how can you get it to them in the most efficient way? Maybe that's virtual. Maybe it's video course. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's a magazine article. Maybe it's a newsletter, whatever that happens to be. And and frankly, P.S., it should be the whole stack. And most consultants are such one trick ponies that they show up, they do a program, they do a little bit of follow up, and that's it. And that doesn't work in the now normal. So you need a full stack of uh, tools that you can apply at every single level of interaction with clients because um, your clients are now in multiple levels of reception. So we have to be in multiple levels of transmission. I mean, I, I don't I'm not trying to overstate it, but I think what you just said is pretty profound, especially the last point about where prospects are, where our potential clients are. We have to meet them where they are. We can't expect them to meet us where where we are, whether that, like you said, whether that happens to be our new book that's coming out or virtual course or whatever, right? We have to meet them where they are. And especially now more than ever, right? Where there is compared to the past normal, right? And I like you, I like your term, the now normal, uh, but compared to the past normal, it's not a question of, we can still give our potential clients choice in how to consume our expertise and how to leverage our expertise but we can't expect that one trick pony approach to be able to work now. Whereas in the past, perhaps you could have been a one trick pony and been able to sustain and build a practice over time. But in today's world, because of the rapidity of change and the nature of that change, I, I, I think, I, I think I'm a, a convert here, Trey. I think I agree with you. I think it is a, it is the nature of a necessity rather to have that full stack. It's interesting, Scott, you know, the past is a monolith right? Every choice that could have been made in the past has been made. It's done. The future is very different. So we can, uh, we can take a different approach to the future. But the past, if I decide I'm going to go do business like I did it six or seven years ago, I might as well decide that I'm going to do it the same way the ancient Egyptians did it. It's exactly the same. There's no differentiation between the two. Uh, the future, a different perspective, right? We have various different ways that we may want to make our choices to address the problems in the future. And we hope the dart hits the target. Right. Um, if it doesn't, we just miscalculated and we recalibrate, hopefully. Uh, but, you know, the past is a monolith. It's not something we can fix. And, you know, I have a client who literally is waiting around for the commercial real estate business to come back again because he had millions of dollars in the funnel. He's a very, very successful guy, relationship expert. That stuff's not coming back that same way. And he already is figuring it out as the deals, you know, time kills all deals. Uh, as, As time takes its toll on his funnel, he's beginning to see that. And so he and I are working towards, you know, what are, what, what other things can we put in the stack and how do you use those to address future customers. I was really privileged to spend some time with the chief marketing officer at uh, Progressive the other day. And, you know, having an insurance-based background myself, I really do not care for the marketing 
that Progressive and Geico and now State Farm and all say, it, very silly stuff on what I consider to be important financial mm-hmm. instruments decisions. So there's a lizard, there's a bear, there's a silly lady and all of that. And I don't care for it. And yeah. I called him on it, completely called him on it. And his response was, okay, you're not the client. And he's right, because I'm not his client in any, in any vertical. And he said, the client is a 14 to 15-year-old boy or girl with an irreverent sense of humor that we are teaching right now to buy from us when the purchase decision is theirs, which is as much as eight to 12 years from now. Wow. Absolutely amazing. That's long-term thinking that not all of us are privileged to do, myself included. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but what they are doing is building that audience for the future. And so as I look at my own stack, I say, well, how am I doing that? How am I trying to get in front of those who might need my consulting help, my my rent-a-brain solution at a later time? And so there are solutions, you know, that you can find uh, to do that. The other thing that I think is worth noting here, consultants are the worst clinical study of imposter syndrome of any group of people in the world. We all are scared to death that while we're on stage, somebody comes in the back and says the emperor has no clothes, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the symptoms of that is us continually and proactively discounting or giving away our services, which is absolutely analytically the dumbest thing that we could possibly do. The only time we do is rent time to our clients on our server on our brain, right? It is a completely finite experience. And um, uh, it's not something that we can, even if we wanted to, we can't manufacture more brain time to sell to other people. And so there's a business model shift that I think most consultants have to go through. And I don't see that they go through it, which is training other junior consultants. Mm. Um, And then there is also the idea that the more time you spend consulting, the more valuable you should prove to be, and your prices have to go up. And so when COVID hit this year, for me, it was clear to me that I had some tough choices to make. The work that I was about to be asked to do was going to be a lot more expensive and difficult to deliver. So I couldn't just parachute in for two or three days, uh, you know, rearrange uh, the deck chairs and then sort of fly out. Yeah. Right. Um, And so I knew that what I did have to do was to clear the decks enough that those who really needed me and the passion that I had was to go into businesses that were that were at the fail point. And before the turnaround, I have a I have a good skill in, in sort of preventing turnarounds, you know, by doing things right in the first place. And so what I faced the choice of doing was going to my clients who were under contract and releasing them from the contracts. Because my concern was that there wasn't a lot that they could do or that they were willing to do at this stage. And to have them under a monthly retainer-based arrangement to me was probably going to do more harm than good for them. Mm-hmm. And it would prevent them from really taking the actions that they needed to take. And it would prevent me from really diving in on the clients that needed my help. So of my, se- I, I always have seven premier level clients. These are the unfettered access. They can call me at three in the morning 
they have access to my entire library of anything that I write uh, in advance. They have they can call me at any point and get whatever they need, introductions, uh, documents, uh, any of that sort of stuff. And I charge a a hefty monthly retainer for that privilege, let's call it. Mm-hmm. I released uh, all seven of those and I had one come back and say, absolutely not. We absolutely have to have you on the team as a, as a uh, fractional executive for the business. And uh, we want to keep paying what we have been paying. The work level did go up with that client, mm-hmm. um, um, but it was okay because I had the bandwidth from the other clients. The other clients all said, now keep this in mind, they all got fired. Right, right. Yeah. And they were all thrilled about it because they knew they were under obligation at, at five figures a month and were very concerned that maybe they would have to break that contract or uh, renegotiate it or have bought something that they couldn't use and that sort of thing. So we all parted as very good friends. As those clients have come back online, we've re-engaged with some of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them have said, we're not going to re-engage because we still need the resources to put towards uh, recovery efforts and that, that type of thing. A lot of businesses are downsizing probably in the right way, and uh, and are using the extra resources to be able to support that in the meantime, that sort of thing. So it turned out to be a very good um, experience for me. Now I have one premier client with 24-7 access. My revenue stream has been blown completely up, right? <laughs> it, yeah. was the right it was the right moral thing to do for people because I didn't want a CEO staying up at night worrying. It was the right ethical thing to do because I did what I would want to have done to me as mm-hmm. well. And in business, it has opened a lot more opportunities uh, for different types of transactions that in the future will be available to me that weren't in the past. And so um, I think that's important to keep that in the frame. I think it's a huge lesson and there's a ton of lessons there I think that we could unpack, but I, I, maybe the key one is just going back to what you just alluded to, which is the the nature of the golden rule and being authentic to yourself and authentic to the mission and vision that you have for your firm. Uh, and the first best place to do that is in mandated, frankly, place to do that is with your existing clientele. And so yeah. to make that as I have no doubt that it was an incredibly challenging and difficult decision at some level, at another level, maybe it was in a very easy decision. Uh, for you to make, but the best one always are, aren't they? You well, know, when, I, I, when it's, when it's <laughs> tough to do, but it's only tough to do basically because of the ego involved. That's the case. I have two coaches that I coach yeah. and um, neither of them followed the same thing. Both of them. And this is what I was keying back to before. Both of them went in and said, you can have all of my services for free until oh, you wow. recover. I see. So yeah. that is an approach. Right. Um, I think it devalues our services. Yeah, it devalues our service. Let's, I'll leave it at that. It devalues our service. And, uh, and I think it makes it more difficult for you to grow influence in that client and additional clients later on. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. One of the first conversations that I had with uh, another business mentor of mine early on in the process, um, he was echoing the same thing. And this, I mean, probably same time frame when you started having these conversations with yourself and with others, it was March uh, and early April when I was having these conversations with my business mentor. And he said, you know, we want to meet people where they are. Uh, he said, the currency of today is empathy. 
And so meet people where they are, but be very, very cautious. I don't think he made it a mandate for me, but he said, be very, very cautious about giving away value or discounting value. That's what the knee jerk and your intuition may, may say to do. Um, and, it, and it's for noble reason, but in the long term, in the future, for and perhaps even more noble reason, it's important that you second guess that approach. And I took that to heart. And um, I don't know that I've been perfect on it, but I've tried to uh, follow that same approach for the reasons that you just laid out. Well, when you started your consulting practice, you didn't knock on a bunch of doors and say, let me do this for free until you figure out that I'm worth something. So just because there's a global pandemic doesn't mean that you should also begin to do that at this stage. Now. Um, you know, I went to law school in New Orleans, and you learn a whole lot of things in law school. And you learn a whole lot more in New Orleans. There's a term uh, in the in the Cajun culture called lanyap. Did I did I tell you this before? Yeah, I love uh, it. And lan lanyap is that little something extra that you do because you're having a good day or you want to engender goodwill. And so it's the baker's dozen. It's the reason you get 13 donuts when you order 12. Uh, that sort of thing. And so as a piece of lanyap, I still keep the clients up to speed on things that I think are important. I still send my former clients a piece of content every now and then before it goes to the wider world to see if it's of interest to them, of help to them, that sort of thing. I'm still very happy to mention their names in relevant uh, conversations and introductions and that sort of thing. There's no reason to be paid for that. But when I put the lens, the laser lens of my brain on your problems, I'm creating value. I have to assume that. I'm creating value and I am entitled to my portion of that value that is created. That is uh, uh, a biblical principle for me and uh, a strong moral principle for me as well. And I think consultants are the first ones to lose sight of that principle. Yeah, I think uh, too often that is absolutely true. Let's dive into some of the value that you do bring, speaking of, and I'll ask you to, to put the lens on just for a few minutes on, um, on professional consultants, which you already have, but your new book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, Culture, People, Numbers. Obviously, I'm familiar with the, the philosophy and uh, some, some detailed level of information. I suspect there's even more that, that I will learn from the book and, and just from staying in touch with your, with your content. But do you mind, you know, professional consultants often don't, and, and speaking from very firsthand experience, Trey, professional consultants don't often see themselves in the role of quote unquote chief executive officer. Right. They may not even own the title on their business card, right? So, but nevertheless, I went through CEO Academy. I've already talked about it uh, and the, the, the results uh, you know, I talked about the experience and how rewarding it was. I didn't even mention the results, but that has not been insignificant either in terms of applying what was learned from CEO Academy in terms of keeping my focus on those three things. And listen, I'll be the first one to admit that that I am no Trey Taylor when it comes to culture, people, and numbers and my ability to have consistent focus on those things like I should. But I at least have an awareness that's heightened that I did not have previously. For a professional consultant, you are one, you work with them all the time. You have this book, A CEO Only Does Three Things. Bridge that gap for, yeah. for me and for others out there who they may not think of themselves as a CEO. And, and the thing they're thinking when they read the title of your book is, I would love to only do those three things, right? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. 
And so bridge that gap for the professional consultant on what they can take away from this general philosophy that you have and, and maybe just briefly break down, you know, your your insight or, or thinking or definitions of culture people numbers. Yeah, absolutely. So right off the bat, I, I think you'll probably remember this from being in the academy with us is a CEO is a role and a title, but it's a role first. Okay. There is only one person in the organization that can perform the work of the CEO. Okay. So that work, which only you can perform in only the way that you can perform it is called art. And I believe greatly that CEOs, not even good CEOs, great CEOs, CEOs are artists. They, you know, the canvas is the future. The I'll t- torture the metaphor. The, the oils are the, you know, the various visions that they have for various things in their businesses and that sort of thing. So not to get too fluffy on that, but, um, you know, I, I have um, profound respect for the person, man or woman who sits in the chair and says, no matter what, all problems will come through me before they get to my people. That's, that is worthy of profound respect. Again, consultants, as, the, uh, as we love to be, are the greatest uh, troublemakers sometimes. Uh, and, and the trouble here is that, they, that a consultant says, well, look, my shop is typically small. One, two, three people, right? And um, I have to do everything. Uh, people will say I'm the chief cook and bottle washer. You know, I have to do everything related to the business. And um, yes, that is true. But we also believe in prioritization mm-hmm. and delegation, right? And outsourcing when it makes sense financially and um, uh, automation when it makes sense financially and operationally. So all of those things that you can can outsource and delegate and automate, you should be doing that leaving time for you to work on the real work of the business, which is the establishment, nurturing, and growth of the culture, the establishment, nurturing, and growth of the people who are with you on the journey, and establishing the numbers and holding the group accountable to those numbers. Those three things can only be done by the CEO because the CEO is the only person that occupies a lofty enough position inside the organization to get perspective and see everything as the moving part. So I always use the example that um, my receptionist may have an opinion on our marketing. She may be uh, wrong. She may be right. She may be both of those things at the same time. It doesn't matter to me because the perspective tied to the vision and the mission that we are trying to accomplish is what's important, and opinion is not. Not that I dismiss it, not that I am rude about it in any way, but what I want to have is that to come in as an input, but not as the final output. That's where we're going with that line of thinking, that it's culture, people, and numbers solely because the CEO can do it. And so if the CEO is a role it's very easy for me to look in your organization. And Scott, you're a perfect example. You've got one, two, three people uh, around the organization. I simply look and say, who is doing culture, people, and numbers? That person by default is the CEO. We may not want to think about ourselves that way. It sounds very corporate. It, it doesn't matter. The title matters less than the role. And, and, and that's what I have to shake loose 
uh, from people's mindset so often. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Do you mind diving a little bit deeper with those? Sure. A key insight um, related to, because I know that for a lot of the consultants that I speak to, uh, and obviously, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have your expertise. I'm not trying to fill your shoes, but I can say that uh, just from offhanded observation, culture in particular seems to be of the three in terms of the people that I engage with, who are my clients, who are consultants of the three, that seems to be the one that is, I don't want to call it the redheaded stepchild. I think it's the one maybe that's just the most misunderstood about that. Yeah. And so because of that, right, when we don't know something, we just tend to avoid it. And so speaking to maybe that issue and then related to uh, people in numbers, just general insight, maybe that a consultant could take away and just a, a different way of thinking about people. And, and of course, when we're talking about people. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Trey, but we're not inherently talking about W-2 employees. Right. Not at all. No, we're that's just about, not the world anymore. It's not the right. We're talking yeah. about team in general. And so and and for for the vast majority of consultants that I engage with, an independent contracting team is is you. I won't say it's ubiquitous, but it almost is. It uh, should for, be. <laughs> right, right. Arguably. Yeah. yeah for, for a consulting practice. Uh, and then on the numbers piece, I think maybe that's the one that people have the most clarity on. But there's this there's this word that comes along with numbers, this difficult and uh, frustrating a word accountability that sometimes gets in the way. And so because we understand numbers, at least at a, at a high level, not at a detailed level, perhaps, but that accountability piece keeps us sort of resistant to it, too. Maybe break yeah. those three down for us just uh, briefly, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a valuable exercise. So um, um, a lot of consultants, well, there's a whole lot of consultants that only want to talk culture today. Have you noticed that? They're springing up all over the place thinking that if we fix culture, we fix everything. And I can't subscribe uh, to that notion because you can have a toxic culture. You can also have what I call a least common denominator culture. And that's a culture that is an unled an unarticulated culture. Uh, obviously, we prefer an articulated culture. And so, um, you know, let's let's think about the word culture and what it means for a second. You know, the easiest metaphor to use is culture is the uh, water in the fish tank that we all swim around in. And the fish never notices if the water is clear and beautiful, if it is yucky. All they notice is how clearly they can see the other fish and the, and the nourishing plants and that sort of thing. That's all they care about. And the harder it is to see the other fish, the other participants in the tank, the harder uh, their lives become until they can't see them at all. Why? Because they're floating up top and they're dead. Okay. So the CEO's job, uh, and I want to answer this in two different levels. One, if you're the consultant, you have a, a, a culture inside your own organization, even if, it, if it's only you. Right. If you are the only fish, you still have to keep that tank clean. And so I stay on top of my single member entity clients to spend way more time in quiet contemplation than I would ever think of doing with larger organization clients, uh, because you're the only one cleaning that tank. You need to do that. Culture finds, uh, the, the word itself finds its root in, in a Latin cognate that means uh, to take care of, to husband, to nourish, right? To nurture. So we cultivate the things that we care about in our garden. That means 
loving the carrot and hating the weed that's growing and choking it out, to use a little different metaphor there. You know, in culture, we are, we are cultured people if we have decided to put our mental energy into nurturing things that, that improve the soul of man. So if we go to museums or if we listen to the symphony or if we, uh, you know, listen to motivational speakers, there's a certain cultural aspect to that as well. All kinds of things uh, that can be going on there need to be paid attention to the cultivation. It's an active sense of the word. And one of the things that you're going to build inside the culture is the people, the people who are along with you on the mission. And, you know, look, the greatest blessings in our lives, Scott, are those uh, mentors that have come into our lives. For me, the work that I did for about 10 or 15 years with a gentleman named Ron Willingham, and Scott, I always look at people's bookshelf um, on these kinds of calls. And so often I see one of Ron's books on the bookshelf. I don't see it up there today. I think, I have to I think it's just out of frame or is maybe it just off camera. Okay. It usually is. Bookshelf across the way. Yeah. But it, yeah, it, there it, are two of Ron's books, uh, two of Ron's books available at, at, at fingertips. Yes. Okay, good. So Ron wrote a book called Integrity Selling in the 80s. It was wildly popular, millions, millions of copies sold. He had a course that over 2.2 million people have gone through in 92 countries around the world. I couldn't name 92 countries. That's the impact of the man. Uh, he left us last summer. I was fortunate uh, to be asked to speak at his funeral. It was a great honor of my life. And um, Ron taught me how to understand people. And his genesis of that was a very simple sort of snowman-shaped model of three circles that we are each created in an intellectual dimension. And this is where we know and think things. So if I were to ask you what year the Columbus sail the ocean blue in unison, you and I would say 1492, right? Of course, because we, we, we have been educated by rote memorization on that. If I ask you how to make toast, you also know from an intellectual standpoint how to make toast, that there's a process behind it. You don't think there is. You think everybody makes toast exactly the same way, but there's an intellectual process behind that. Most education, Western education was targeted to the I think or I know dimension for hundreds, thousands of years, you know, from the time of the Irish monks in the early Middle Ages up until the 60s, what we cared about was rote memorization. There's a great scene in Dead Poets Society where they're learning their Latin uh, declensions, you know, and they're just repeating them over and over and over again, that style of learning. Mm -hmm. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, we began to wake up to this idea uh, that there is an emotional equivalent to that. And Ron was able to identify that and call it the um, I feel dimension. Pretty, pretty easy there. And it, uh, you know, in the, in the late 80s became quantified as EQ. The right. intellectual, of course, was IQ. This was EQ. And um, that held sway for quite a long time. And then the third dimension is the I am or the identificational dimension. It's where we hold our self-image. And, and he took a lot of that work from his personal friendship and work with Dr. Maxwell Maltz, who wrote Psycho-Cybernetics, another book that's on everybody's bookshelf that very few people have read, but uh, we all have our copy of it. And, uh, and, and Dr. Maltz was a plastic surgeon who began to do social science because of the learnings that he got from people and how they acted psychologically in his uh, plastic surgery practice in New York City. So super interesting. 
uh, things. There's no quotient for the I am dimension yet. That's something that some of Willingham's uh, adherents are, are working on. Okay, so who cares about all of that, right? Put a bow on it. The bow is that unless you are able to recognize those three dimensions in yourself and work on those three dimensions, improving your strengths, uh, uh, diminishing your weaknesses, and bringing those three things into coherent focus, then you are not able to, as effectively as you could be, interface with other people, be they clients, spouses, drive through window person, whoever it is that you need on your team to accomplish a goal or a desire that you have, you're going to be less effective, the less focused and integrated those three things are. And so the definition of integrity is that I think, I feel, and I be the exact same thing. Mm. And that was Ron's great learning to me. So then if I'm trying to attract people into my organization, I spend a lot of time figuring out how they think, how they feel, and how they view themselves in the world. Because if those three things do not line up to my three things culturally, my articulated cultural values, then we're probably not going to be a success. And I'm going to think that guy's a terrible person. And he's definitely going to think I'm a bad boss. Always happens that way. Where in reality, we just haven't done enough homework on the right stuff. Instead, you know, you bring somebody in and say, well, tell me about yourself. And they do. And it's an interview and they tell you all the best stuff about themselves. None of which is applicable to this type of analysis. So that's the first thing about people is that you have to really do the heavy lifting of understanding people. The second piece of that for me fell into place when I read a social scientist from Canada. His name is Elliot Jacks. And Elliot figured out from his work with the U.S. Army, the Catholic Church, massive organizations like GE. He was one of the founders of the Tavistock Institute in the United Kingdom, uh, did work with the uh, Council on Foreign Relations and that sort of thing. And what he was, he was obsessed with this and this, this question. If I hire two people similarly situated by background, same zip code growing up, same schools, Ivy League, great grades, whatever the model is, one of them will outperform the other one. Every single time, it's never not the case. Why? And what Elliot figured out was that people have a time frame under which they can work unsupervised and still produce the optimal result. And that time frame is different from person to person from a lot of different reasons. In my opinion, Ron knows the reasons. They're all held in the identity identity level of the I am dimension. But Elliot knew that as a, as a truth about people. So when we do organizational design, whether it be a one, two, three person organization or a 300 person organization that, that I just finished up a, a, a planning engagement with, what we really try to figure out is, do you have your people in the right positions? Because positions want to have their own time frame, And if the inhabitant of that position does not live in that same time frame, they cannot produce the results demanded by that time frame. And then we form opinions about them as people, which is wrong, you know, that this person is lazy or stupid or, or uh, subversive or any of those kinds of things can all be opinions formed on someone who isn't doing a good job in the position. And then back to the very first point that we made, 
there's only one person in the organization who can see that and is empowered to take action. And that's the CEO. So that's the people vertical. Getting long-winded, I know, but that's oh, the yeah. important Excellent. second part of the people vertical. Excellent. Numbers is a lot easier. Uh, numbers is all about the idea of, of achieving goal clarity. So numbers, no matter what they are, they are simply score scorecard notations uh, for goals. So if I want to know how impactful my message is, one way to answer that is to see how much revenue I'm generating from the spread of that message. Right. If it is very, very little, there's probably a problem either with the message or the delivery, and very often it's sales. If it's really, really big, then obviously I'm connecting on those things and I might want to look at some other numbers um, uh, to improve profitability and that sort of thing. One of the things I notice: the smaller the organization that I work with is a very basic lack of demonstrable understanding of profit. Hmm. So in, in taking the risk of insulting all of your wonderful viewers here today, you know, profit is what's left over after you bring money in and you spend it on things that are important. And none of us take profit out before we do other things. And so you can build a very beautiful uh, lifestyle practice, your entire life doing the work that you love and forget yep. that it is about, uh, it is also about taking uh, time for, or taking money for your time as well and laying that aside. And so I'm a huge believer in the book Profit First. I have a friend who's writing the book Profit First for real estate uh, right now. Big believer in Profit First and Traction as well, but Profit First is very, very good. Um, because what I find is that consultants exist with this mindset that if I just do really good work for a really long time, somebody will come and buy my business and give me a lot of money. Right. I've never once right. seen it happen. And if I was the kind of guy to give you a list of names, you'd be astounded at the high, high, high level consultants that I know that lived under that misassumption and who died, if not broke, substantially worth less money than they thought they would be. And if that's an important measurement for you, then you probably want to take action of that upfront. Just for ourselves, we take the first uh, 10% of every dollar that comes in the door and we do a charitable thing with that. We, we feel just in my own worldview that we have a moral obligation to do that. The very next 10%, 10 to 20% of the profit that comes in goes to my profit account and very intentionally does not come back into the business. It may go into a different business. I may buy a piece of real estate or I may invest in something else. The other 80% that's left after taxes, of course, I should say taxes is the first 30%, of course, but you know, after that's left, that's what I'm free to use to grow the business. Now, I may pay myself a salary. I may hire somebody else. I may purchase marketing, whatever it happens to be. But that's the way that you build a profitable and long-standing um, uh, practice. And so it's important to me when we talk about numbers that we talk about that. Thirdly, it, when we talk about numbers, you have to talk about accountability. So uh, when you're managing other people, really the, the premier job that you have is setting the goal with as much clarity as you can, and then making sure that people keep that goal. And so very recently, one of my contractors has disappointed four different times and that four different times has pushed a project out six weeks past the point that it's useful to run. That project would have created $100,000 in revenue, 
And so the only lever I have is to dismiss that consultant. If they had performed poor work and turned it in on time, I'd still be in a better position than getting perfect work turned in six weeks late, right? So accountability is extremely important and we have to have that. Transparency is extremely important. So I never blanch when somebody says, well, I don't understand. How are you charging this? Or what do you do for this? I will report my numbers to anyone at any given time. And most of the time, what I find is people say, you're too expensive. I do it for less money. But my problem is I can't find any clients, you know? So there's a mismatch there. And I think it's important to be transparent. We're very transparent with our clients, of course, on, you know, what they're going to spend and what they're going to get. But we're transparent with our team inside the office as well. This is how much we generate for this activity. If we generate less than that, you may or may not have a job. If we generate more than that, we can do more things for each other. Uh, very clear. I'm being a little oblique, but very clear when we talk about that. If you walk down the central hallway of our building, we have all of our annual goals on the building and then right below or on the wall. And right below that, we have the monthly progress, year-to-date progress towards that goal. So very important for that. Finally, uh, for numbers, and no one has to agree with this uh, but me, you got to give it away, right? And so one of the things that we do is encourage people to look at a uh, foundation, private foundation. It sounds like a, a rich uncle money bags from Monopoly, you know, or something of that nature. Every single state has what's called a community foundation, and you can open your own foundation for less than $500 as a contribution. It's called a donor-advised fund. And so we, we swipe 10% right off the top. We put it into that fund. Now, here's the little secret. That fund is not going to give money to anybody that I don't tell them to, but they're also not going to let me just give it to anybody that I want to. So if my niece is going to college, I can't give her a scholarship because that falls afoul of uh, IRS guidelines. But what it does allow me to do, especially if I'm circling a big client, it does allow me to all of a sudden have the same charitable interests as that big client. I'm not advising that anybody would do this on an inauthentic manner, but it often opens doors for me to say, I'd love to talk to you about your work and I have a check to write. And that check has already been written off my taxes and I'm going to do that gifting in a way that advances the human situation for sure. I'm going to do it within, you know, a court of my own values and that sort of thing. But I get a lot of big high level meetings because no matter what, big, important people love to talk about how they give back. And if they give back and you give back at the same time, you have a lot more to talk about, which often leads to business opportunities. So that's uh, that's the whole book in a nutshell. Now your readers don't your viewers don't even need to buy it. Uh, I would appreciate it if they did. But, uh, (laughs) you know, now that's sort of the whole thing. And, uh, and we have exercises built into the book and that sort of thing. But that gives you a full pricey on what the uh, book looks like. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing overview. Thank you for taking the time to, to walk us through it. And, um, and, and no, no one watching this is off the hook to, to go get a copy of the book. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Trey, Trey was very light on his, uh, if nothing else, Trey was very light on his stories. And um, not only yeah. are the stories very entertaining and incredibly moving at times, but uh, they're packed with lessons uh, as well. So uh, no, no one's off the hook there, Trey. But thank you for being so generous with with walking us through all that. That's tremendous. Yeah, um, so that's the structure of it. But to your point, uh, you know, we dress it up with some case studies and some some sort of emotionally impactful things. Because I always find that for myself, I learn better if I can remember 
a story and how it, it affected someone. And so we've done a lot of work to really pull those stories into that, into the book and into the course as you experienced as well. Yeah, no question. It was, it, it brought to life, right? You, you know, I think, I feel I am. Uh, the nature of the program that I went through brought brought these concepts and strategies and tactics and ideas to life at all three levels. And um, no doubt that that's the precise reason why it was such a, an important program for me, both as a professional and as a leader of my own firm, but also as a human being. So, Yeah, good. I'm uh, glad to hear that. Last couple of kind of lightning round questions here. And not you, you don't rush your responses, but just two quick things. Biggest challenge in your perspective, working with clients being, or excuse me, working with consultants, being a consultant. And, and to be fair, I should mention for everyone watching this, Trey does do work with consultants, which he's alluded to, but he also does work with very high level organizations, which he's also alluded to. So he, he runs the spectrum. Uh, his skills are not pigeonholed into a particular size or shape or scope of a business opportunity. For consultants though, Trey, biggest challenge or opportunity that you see, and I think you may have already alluded to this, but biggest challenge or opportunity you see consultants have available to them, but they are most often ignoring or overlooking. Yeah. So let me answer um, just because I want to take the time for a second. Uh, mm -hmm. Challenges are one thing. Sins are another. Right. And and there exists a body of literature that pokes fun at, at consultants for good reason. Uh, my favorite <laughs> definition of a consultant is somebody you pay a lot of money to from out of town to tell you what you already know. Right. And, and we are all guilty of it completely. Uh, and the way that I see it present itself the most is that people come in and assume that the lens that they had on for the last client or the last 35 clients, you're going to find exactly the same things. It creates a sense of myopia. It creates uh, one of my favorite words uh, in, this, uh, in this industry is a scotoma. It's a medical blind spot, right? You cannot see it because you are not looking for it. And we have to be better than that. We have to go in with as open-minded uh, an analysis as we can and get right to the point and tell people what they are doing to hurt themselves. And that is uncomfortable and it isn't glossy and tied with a bow and nice to get and that sort of thing. But that is what we should be paid to do. We should be professional challengers, challengers of assumption, challengers of ego, challengers of bad decisions. That is what we should be paid to do. Not every client wants that result, so we let other people service those clients. But uh, those that do, those that really have a thirst for truth, make very good clients for very good consultants. So I believe that greatly. One of the pet peeves that I have, again, is that consultants don't try to be good at running a business because they figure it's only them and an assistant or them and a junior consultant and an assistant or something of that nature. And that is just wrong. The better business that you can run, the more people you can help. I love uh, my friends on the opposite side of the uh, political spectrum love to talk about sustainability and that sort of thing. The best way to sustain a business is to build a profitable business, right? My clients are not served if I cannot afford to serve them. And so I think running a business is a very important uh, thing to do. Uh, alongside that and very much a part of that is professionalizing the delivery of the final results. 
And so if that means uh, using a piece of, of, of very good high quality software, if it means um, having a, a highly outsourced uh, virtual assistant team, each person doing the best thing and touching it uh, in the best way that they can, it doesn't necessarily matter to me. I have an opinion on which is best and which isn't. It doesn't necessarily matter to me, but get to that place because that's how you help more clients deeply. And that if that's not our motto, if that's not what we're trying to do, then there may be a good reason why the imposter syndrome is so strong with us. I, you probably hit a nerve. <laughs> I um, hope so. <laughs> and I, yeah, exactly. Well, precisely, right? Uh, those are tremendous. Yeah, I don't know that I have anything to add. Uh, not that I need to add anything, but the one that I will say resonates most with me that that I need to do, be more conscientious of and pay more attention to is this note about being a professional challenger. Historically, you know, my focus is on, I'm not trying to make everybody happy to make everybody happy, but I don't like to, to hurt feelings, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Sure. And, and at some point, to your point, that's not what they're paying me for, right? They're paying me for truth. Uh, as a consultant who may be watching this video, they're paying you if they're not to, to, to trace point, not every client may be paying you for truth. So it's, it's important to right. get clarity on that up front. But if they are paying you for truth, then you cannot be afraid to deliver the truth in a, in a professional and gracious and thoughtful and empathetic way. But that doesn't change what the truth is. So yeah. it's a, a huge note. So thank you. Scott, do we have time for a story? Uh, yes, we do. Of course. Okay. I want to tell you a story and I want to use this story to get to the last recommendation that I make uh, for for consultants. Right. And, and, and that, let me just go ahead and give away the, uh, you know, not bury the lead, but give it away. Consultants exist in a lonely place. It's a small group activity at best. Usually it's a very solitary one. Usually the life is on a plane pre-COVID in a hotel room by yourself. Scott, I know you're introverted. You might not uh, be as bothered by that as some other people are, but it's still nice to come home and be around uh, the, the wife and that sort of thing too, I know. But it is a lonely type of existence. And it is my belief that consultants benefit when they band together in some form or fashion. One of the first things that we see when consultants join uh, a mastermind type circle is expanding their own service offering by saying, well, hey, wait a minute, I happen to have a guy who's an expert at that. Why don't I sell that and we'll share the revenue and that sort of thing. So that's one thing. But the other thing is much more important. And so I, I go back to a story that I love to tell from the stage. There was a magician in the late 80s, uh, or sorry, late 70s, early 80s, Art Zorka. When I dug into this, Zorka's daughter lived eight houses down from me in the town that I grew up in outside of Atlanta. And I was researching this story because I wanted to get the story right. And she said, oh, yes, that's exactly the right story. And not only that, is here's a whole bunch of pictures of my dad that you can use when you tell it. So I should pull them up. Uh, Zorka was a motivational speaker and a magician. And Scott, I know you love magic. And so he was speaking in uh, New Orleans one weekend uh, for a conference. And I think it was an automobile, automobile industry conference. And he headed to the airport on Sunday afternoon to fly back home. And as he approaches the gate, he sees this, you know, just press of humanity uh, surrounding somebody. And the closer he gets, he realizes that the person in the center is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is one of my heroes, one of my dad's heroes. My dad sent Muhammad Ali a telegram every single time, either as Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali, that he won a fight his entire career. Mm -hmm. 
right? So total hero. I grew up hearing Muhammad Ali stories, but I never heard this one. And so he he walks up to try to get on the, you know, get in line for the plane. And Muhammad Ali looks at him and he says, put him up. Now, if the heavyweight champion of the world tells you to put him up, you're going to go like this, right? He says, no, 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 put him up. And he puts his hands out sort of like this. And he, and Art, Art does that because you do what Muhammad Ali says. And he takes his briefcase and he plops it up on uh, Art's hands as if he's there as a table of, you know, something. And he's rifling through and he comes out with some tickets. And uh, he puts his uh, briefcase down, a very stern, fake, stern look. He says, uh, you must be a magician. And Art is blown away. He says, my God, champ, you're right. I am a magician. How did you know? And he pointed to Art's suitcase that he's carrying with him. that says, Art Zorka, magician, on the side of it. <laughs> so he felt very abashed by that. And he said, are you flying first class? And he said, no, I tried to get you know, on the first class cabin, but they didn't have any seats. He says, okay, when we get up, the stewardess is going to come find you. And we're going to do magic together all the way to Atlanta. Wow. But champ, no, 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 don't worry. That's what's going to happen. So they, they board the plane, first class, of course, first, and then the rest of humanity, and they all get on the plane. Now, Art knows that first class checked in full. Sure enough, the light goes off, stewardess comes back, the champ would love you to join him in first class. Now, to this day, we don't know if the guy sitting next to Muhammad Ali was ejected from the plane, uh, banished to the bathroom. We have no idea what happened to that guy, but regardless, he gets to sit with Muhammad Ali for two and a half hours on a flight to Atlanta. And they did magic the whole time. And he said, Trey, you would not believe the dexterity that a man with hands this big mm. had. And the mental acuity to watch a trick once and do it flawlessly next. There was no working on the chops, you know? It was he would see it, he would get it, and then often would improve it mm. and teach the teacher right back. That's Muhammad Ali. So they, you know, they announced the final descent into uh, Atlanta and Art is beside himself. He says, champ, I speak all over the world to audiences where I teach them to bring magic into their lives. Today, I got to ask you something that I can bring my audiences because this is too good an opportunity to pass up. This is years worth of material for me. Can I ask you, what's the biggest lesson you ever learned in your career? Ali doesn't miss a beat. He says, 1963, Cassius Clay is fighting Sonny Liston for the world heavyweight champion title. The big belt is what they call it. I'm scared to death of Sonny Liston. The entire boxing world is scared to death of Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston learned to fight, learned to box in prison. And here he is on the world stage taking on little, scrawny, but beautiful Cassius Clay. And I'm scared to death. Back in those days, we had a race problem in this country. And I was representing one series of thoughts on that issue. And Sonny Liston was representing a very different one. And so just in between uh, the, the fact that two fighters had to fight, there was a whole lot of other issues that, frankly, I wasn't emotionally prepared to deal with. So I did what I did best. I looked pretty and I danced. And so we got in the ring after a lot of, you know, hullabaloo back and forth, a lot of press, a lot of people stirring in a pot. We get in the ring 
And uh, we decide to go after it. And we go after it for four rounds. The bell dings going into the fifth round. And I sit down on the stool. And Angelo Dundee is behind me. He's my coach. And uh, he's a ringman. And, and Angelo Dundee is wiping the blood and, and the sweat. And I'm telling him, Angelo, I can't, I can't go back out there. I cannot go back out there. And Angelo is roaring in my ear. Get up get up. You're going back out there. He says, Angelo, I can't throw in the towel. And, and Ali reaches. You can look at YouTube and find the fight. He's reaching for the towel and Angelo pulls it away. And finally, the bell rings. And uh, Ali is in the corner shaking his head. He can't go catch his play. I cannot go out there. Can't do it. And in a not so legal move, Dundee grabs the stool, pulls it out, props him up and pushes him forcibly to take three steps and toe the line, mm. which he does by himself. Sonny Liston didn't answer the bell. Sonny Liston was feeling the same thing in his corner, and they threw the towel in. Immediately, all of Ali's energy returned, and he ran around the ring and was celebrating and all of that sort of thing. And it was his first time winning the belt as heavyweight champion of the world. And he looks at Zorka and he says, What's the lesson that I learned that day? Zorka said, I got it. You learned to always go the extra mile, to train to be stronger than the next guy, to always toe the line, no matter how hard it hurt. And Ali, in a very quiet voice, said, no, those are good lessons. But that's not what I learned that day. What I learned that day was to always have somebody in my corner who saw more in me than I saw in myself. You tell your listeners that. Mm -hmm. Scott, you tell your listeners that. This is a lonely profession and a hard way to earn a living. It's often thankless, and it's often where we throw our pearls before swine, not to single out any particular client. Okay? We need to band together. We need to come together and assist each other when that's possible. To do that, you need a group that's on the same journey as mm -hmm. you are. And that's a very important thing for consultants to learn. And I always thank you for the time that you give me, but I thank you especially today for letting me make that announcement, that message uh, to your group. Uh, amen, brother. Thank you for sharing it. As we uh, close out, I, first of all, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you investing the time, effort to, to this nebulous, invisible group that you're speaking to today. Who knows where those ripples will go, but they will go far and wide. And thank you for me too, because it's been incredibly valuable. I have four or five pages of notes <laughs> uh, as I, every time we speak. Uh, if someone wants to find out more about you, if someone wants to get in touch with you, if someone wants to buy your book, if someone's interested in, in Trinity Blue Consulting, what's the best way for them to find you or to reach out? Yeah, we've got uh, a website at trinity blue Dot com, so you can find us uh, there. Uh, the book itself drops on Amazon on November the 10th, and we'll have uh, some launch events going on around that uh, and that sort of thing uh, around that time. So uh, go on Amazon on November the 11th, and you can uh, get a copy of that book. And uh, one of the things that uh, has been suggested to us that we're going to do a bit of a book club, sort of a 60 or 90 minute webinar for those that have purchased the book. And so if we do that, then, uh, you know, I'd love to have folks uh, come on that with us as well and share their experiences with the material. Yeah, that would be great. That would be fantastic. Yeah. 
Trey, thank you again. And I, I trust that everyone out there uh, has copious notes as I do. Trey, until next time, thank you. And I'll look forward to our next conversation. Everybody who's out there, uh, be sure to not just look at your notes and shelve them, right? Look at them, identify the one, two, three things that you want to act on right now and get to work. Until next time, this is Scott Cantrell for Smart Solutions Media, wishing you all the best of success. Thank you for listening. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. And before we go, I want to thank the sponsor of our show, Smart Solutions Media. Smart Solutions Media empowers business owners, consultants, and other independent professionals to easily attract better prospects and transform them into long-term clients. If you're a B2B consultant or service professional and would like to start filling your pipeline with better quality prospects, visit us on the web at smartsolutionsmedia.com to learn more about what we can do to help you. Be sure to complete the short two-minute accelerated growth scorecard you can find on the website and you'll receive a complimentary strategy session where we'll give you specific insights and recommendations to help you attract high-value clients. Until next time, make sure you are consulting with authority.